of Contemporary Performing Arts. I'm Raina Searles, Marketing Manager here at Fringe Arts. And I'm Tanara. I'm the Audience Engagement Coordinator at Fringe Arts. We invite you to pour one up and enjoy our conversations with some of the most imaginative people on this plane of existence. Now, at the time this episode comes out, summer is in full swing at Fringe Arts. We have our free outdoor movie series featuring popular hits every Wednesday at 8.30 in our beer garden. We have happy hour deals from Le Peg with a beautiful view of the waterfront. And we on the Fringe Arts staff are working hard to make sure the 2019 Fringe Festival is ready to launch this September. So today, we're excited to be chatting with one of the artists who will be helping us launch the 2019 Fringe Festival with an exciting participatory dance piece on the heels of the Super Grand Continental from 2018. Today we're talking with Mariana Arteaga, who's doing, can you say the name of your piece? Umbal. Umbal. <laughs> Welcome, Mariana. Thank you very much for receiving me, Reina and Tenera. <laughs> our French arts in general, of yes. course. So our first question that we always have to ask uh, is, what are we all drinking for this episode of Happy Hour on the Fringe? Definitely coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I am addicted to. I'm having coffee because I already, you know, had some lunch. And every time I eat, I need my coffee after. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, like, post-meal stupors that you go into and it's, like, mm -hmm. ready for a nap. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I'm drinking water. Yeah, I'm having um, an all-natural Snapple <laughs> takes two to mango tea, um, so a very fruity flavor today. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. So, um, we're talking about Umbal today. Can you tell us a little bit about where, um, where the idea for Umbal came from? Umbal was uh, a response to a political situation that I was having in my country, Mexico. I mean, I... I like a collective <laughs> thinking as, an, as a Mexican citizen. I don't know if you're familiar, there were 43 students that disappeared and they were from Ayotzinapa Guerrero. And first, the first idea was my reflection about a body that is not visible anymore and what does it say, which is uh, for me one of the greatest ways of torturing a country. And this idea of disappearance and this idea of not finding where are these bodies. Um, so my reflection was about how important it was to make a body visible. And also it has to do with a conversation with virtual uh, territory and geographic territory with bodies that are virtual and bodies that are walking in the streets and this idea that also these bodies are disappearing of uh, being seen physically in the space, in the public space. Um, and at the same time when this happened there were some demonstrations in my city against this phenomenon that happened, this disappearance and I noticed uh, during the demonstrations that there were policemen or military groups uh, being able to encapsulate part of the demonstration and I noticed that it was really well rehearsed and choreographed mm -hmm. 
Choreographed. Choreographed. And so it made, made me think about the power of choreography, whether if you use it to, to be repressive. But maybe also I, I remember about some other kind of choreographic demonstrations that have made a great impact in our global history, which was, for example, the Standing Man protest mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Turkey in 2013. So I had these two comparative uh, ways of making a statement through choreography. So this is my field. My field is dance and the choreography. So I thought that if there were policemen that could make this all choreography in order to repress uh, the others, what about if we could rehearse as citizens ways of freedom or ways of organi organizing ourselves and to make a visible collective body that organizes and that inhabits the public space in a different way. Mm -hmm. That's how Umbal was born as a nomadic choreography for inhabitants. Mm. Can you give our audience a little context? You know, I think we in the States probably heard about 43 disappeared students, but we may not know the, the deep political things that were going on in Mexico. These were college students. Yeah, they were, they were starting to, be, to become teachers. And they were trying to make some protests. Now, the thing is, I have to remember because I, I don't want to give that wrong information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The information, what I hear about is they wanted, they stole or they took from some bus companies, tourist okay. bus companies, mm -hmm. some buses, in order to come to Mexico and make these big protests like every year for the killing of students in the 68. Right. So that happened. Some people were warned about it. So some policemen and militaries from the zone uh, would try to stop these students for going uh, or taking these buses, right? But the way of doing it, like they stopped two buses, in the, you know, in the way, mm -hmm. they cross in front mm -hmm. of the buses and they wouldn't let them you know, mm -hmm. go on. But one of the buses was like going around and when they captured these students, this last bus, they were supposed to take these students to one kind of police station or mm -hmm. to one part. And in the way of delivering these students to that part, mm -hmm. they disappeared. And nobody knows where they are. At the same time, when, when they stopped the first two buses, there were some confrontations, and two students were killed oh, wow. already in the confrontations. Mm -hmm. I would like to just to have an accurate look in, my, in the Yeah, that's fine, head, definitely. Uh, to say that I'm, what I'm saying is absolutely true. But it's going to be a longer story in terms of the... This idea is kind of crisscross, mm -hmm. also with the narco war that is the criminal organizations that are in Mexico mm -hmm. because there is like this agreement between militars, narco power and and they have control everything. So we had been in this for the last twelve years in this kinds of situation that people would disappear. Mm -hmm. And then they would be found later on in this, I don't know how to say it in English, that you create this collective 
grave. Graves, yeah. Oh, okay. So, in all these 12 years, like thousands, thousands of people have been killed, have disappeared, and till now, they're starting to discover new graves. Like, yeah. Wow. So, but this was, so this was the frame. So what happens that, of course, we know there is, there is a frame where the students like can go out of the, of the law, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the way of uh, solving this is through this kind of violence and extreme violence, which is disappearing the bodies until now, nobody knows where the bodies are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were allegedly taken into custody, like it says, on September 26, 2014. 43 male students from the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College were forcibly taken and then disappeared in Iguala Guerrero. Mm-hmm. So yes, they were organizing to go to this demonstration in Mexico City that would take place um, October the 2nd. And there mm-hmm. is a say from 1968 till now. Uh, we do not forget October the 2nd. Mm-hmm. And there was a massive killing of students during the protests of the 68 in a very important public square in Mexico City that is called the Three Cultures Square, which in Spanish is Plaza de las Tres Culturas. So people every year will go there and say, we do not forget, right? So they were allegedly taken into custody by uh, local police members from Cocula and Iguala. But it is said that it was made in collusion with this organized crime, right? Oh, I see. Yeah. I guess just to kind of clarify, was the problem that they stole the buses or was it that they were going to To protest? protest? I think, no, it's not a way of going to the protest. It has to do that, that this kind of political, geographical tensions in Guerrero, where they are from. Mm-hmm. Guerrero is called Tierra Caliente. So it has, it is kind of a warrior state. Okay. And also some kind of nobody's land. Mm. So is it well known that the police people and, and as I said, the narco power mm-hmm. would, would always uh, work a sample so create their own kind of law. Mm-hmm. So, and this kind of kind of a violence pattern that increases with the arrival or with the, not the arrival but the opening of these narco power groups so everybody could know when this happened and the disappearance between the trans- transporting the students from Gokula to another to another place that this way of disappearance has to do with this complexity. But this complexity is not only about the 68, it's about power, it's about money, it's mm-hmm. about the geographical place where Guerrero is. It has to do with the history of Guerrero. So, yeah, I mean, the story is pretty much as I said it to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's absolutely right, but I think I didn't say it properly. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what I'm going to like kind of read it to you. Yeah, they, they were intended to travel to Mexico City to celebrate this. No, not celebrate. Commemorate the anniversary of the 1968. So the local police attempted to in- intercept these buses. Again, because they had stolen the buses? Yeah, because okay. they have taken. And that, that is a practice by students that is kind of... Is that common? 
kind of also a global thing. It's not okay. that we do it every day or like, oh yeah, they're gonna take and then we'll return back. No, but there mm-hmm. is a practice, like practice in these university students that sometimes they might do that. The thing is that during that time there are so many gaps about mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. and who has the information of where are they and that's the question like where are they because there was like for example after a while it was so much social pressure about this that they say that they have found like this kind of grave collective grave so there was a group of forensics from Argentina they're really specialized people and they came to you know made a test and they say no these are not the bodies oh, wow. still so but they're just other bodies. Yeah, and uh, yeah, still they were other bodies, right? So the government's response was to try and say that they had them, even when they didn't. Yeah, and there is this kind of thing of we are doing the best that we can. We cannot mm-hmm. find it, but you don't see like like they're really working on finding out what happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, there were special groups of the narco, they are located specifically in Guerrero, they are a group of power that controls locally and they are always or almost all the time in relationship with the governor or with the mayor or with mm-hmm. the, uh, right, in, in during the times of, this happened during the times of Enrique Peña Nieto presidency. Mm-hmm. I think what is more... How can I say it? There's a layer or the layer underneath this mm-hmm. is that this is a story that that is exhausting a society because it's not the first time, mm-hmm. and and so imagine a society that is receiving this kind of information or this kind of sensation of that you're living in a like no law at all. And suddenly that happens to the promise of a, of, of a Mexico of the future, future, which are students. Not that right. all lives are not important, but it's like a symbolic thing. And it's very clear that they have disappeared. So this, I think it has to do with the story how we name things and the importance of naming mm-hmm. the things that are happening. So for me also, these 43 students were not like only the 43. It was a way of naming all the thousands of bodies that had disappeared before. Mm-hmm. Like to make something, to embody something very concrete, which were them, but also you know, all these bodies. So, like it was the first time in my life I would see every day like demonstrations through mm-hmm. demonstrations and demonstration. And it was like the streets of the one of the main avenues in Mexico Reforma, like packed, full of people. Mm-hmm. Like, doing this protest, but it was a state of the nation, right? It was a state of the citizens, and it was, it was urgent, like, to, to manifest this uh, anger mm-hmm. and also this grief. It's very important to grieve, but at the same time, I think there was so much anxiety because you are only able to really grieve when you have certainty of that a body is dead. Right. Mm-hmm. While a body is not dead and it has just disappeared, is in this kind of limbo that is not alive and it's not death. So how can you process that? And I think to be able to be conscious of that as a society that made us like protest in this way 
And for me also, what happened is that I had never lived my city in that way. It's funny when I, I have never lived in, in war conditions, in other kind of political conditions, a more extreme. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean um, we're not living in a very violent situation or we haven't been living. But I hadn't been very conscious of how this could affect us until that moment. That uh, for the first time I felt my city that is full of life sad mm-hmm. and undermined. Mm-hmm. Undermined, yeah. And it was a shock for me because uh, I would watch these videos of these demonstrations and everything what was happening. Uh, I was watching this in Japan. I was doing this artistic residency. So for me, like arriving and just walking through the streets and feeling this, it was like, what's going on? Like it was very unique and sad and the sadness takes power to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about the kind of eruption of action and protest and an urgency that happened after Parkland, the school Mm. shooting in Parkland High School. Um, You know, that's not coming from the state, which is different than the situation you're describing, but similarly, it's for, it's like violence enacted against students, you know, the future Mm -hmm. of tomorrow. And what came out of it was the most, I mean, I, I don't think that in my life as I have experienced consistent school and public space shootings in the United States, like in news of them, like I haven't felt that kind of, I felt like after the, the kindergartners, we were just all depressed. Like none of us could do anything about it. And like just the deep, deep sadness. And then after Parkland, all of a sudden, because the students themselves were then starting this, yeah, they were speaking out. That felt similarly like there is something really electric happening that then pulls at the threads of all of the states of the nation. We have, If we're talking about this, we have to talk about, yeah, we have to talk about lobbying. We have to talk about racism. We have to talk, like, it just, it made us all start talking about mm-hmm. things. And, yeah, yeah, I'm resonating a lot with yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the other thing that I didn't discover, but later on, six months later, I will get there. Uh, it has to do with how those collective lives in you. So those were, I mean, that was the situation uh, with the Ajat Sinapa students. But as you can see, the situation itself reflects other historical, political realities that we were carrying out. Mm -hmm. And by that moment, like, Mm -hmm. everybody was like, "Ah." yeah, so that was the situation. So can you tell us a little bit about umbal and the design of the piece as a way of pushing against the invisibility of these bodies yeah um i I thought that our response had to be in different layers first against the disappearance is the appearance of a body and uh, an appearance of a voice a collective body so i thought that the public space would be the place to do that and to take this kind of structure of doing things in the street and to go through streets as, as, as our way of protesting. But at the same time, I thought that the idea of the rehearsed the possibilities as a society to imagine ourselves living differently 
And like the only way of being a counterpart of that would be to kind of empower us and to take care of the other and to have agreements and, and to be able to negotiate and to be able to perceive and to be in public space in different ways that a demonstration is, right? Like we had to rehearse these possible ways of meeting each other's. Mm -hmm. So there is this um, you know, author woman uh, really admired that is H Hannah Harent. And she said, freedom is also rehearsed. Mm -hmm. So that was resonating with me very much, this like phrase. So I was like, yeah, we have to, we have to practice our own freedom and we have to feel what, what could that be? That made me think of a structure of a nomadic choreography. Not a choreography that was going to be in a square where it's meant to be when you're doing these big festivals or celebration. We needed to be walking through the streets and dancing. Dancing is the way I communicate things. And also dancing for me was a way of recovering this power mm -hmm. and the power of joy to be able to confront things. There is something very magical about this this idea of living collective joy as a way of power mm -hmm. this idea of giving mm -hmm. power to the people but I really believed in that because I had been doing some other collective choreographic works and I had witnessed it in them and in myself the effect of that and the effect of that is that I was willing to be with others and to negotiate mm. and to enjoy of the other and to trust the other. So I was talking not in this global way, but I was very interested in the micro revolutions and mm. in the micro politics. That's for me where, where the things could lead us to little fractures that eventually will come in some kind of change. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not thinking in, the, in like big pictures. I do not believe in this kind of thing. I, I think because of our social economical system, global system, that's not that possible. So that's why I was interested in this kind of micropolitics. So if I said like if we can experiment it, 50, 60 people or something, it's going to be great. So anyway, it's going to be great just the fact that there will be... 50 or 60 people willing to do that. Mm -hmm. It's just like... Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. And also this idea of if we were going to do a collective statement, then even if I had this idea or if I could guide a project, the voice should be collective. So I say I'm not gonna tell the others to dance my dance steps because mm -hmm. it's, then they're only talking about me. So how can I do it to, to make it collective and to listen to the voices of everybody? That's why I thought that, well, the dance steps of the people would be our raw material. Mm -hmm. That's how the first phase was born. And then that thing led to the other. Like say, yeah, and the construction should be the same. <laughs> like the choreographic construction should not only be led by me or by a choreographic team, but also by citizens. 
And it's also a way to be needing and recovering some kind of power that you will acknowledge or you will recognize that you know and you didn't know that you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then third phase would be like calling calling to these other 50 citizens that would like to be part of this project. So I'm curious, this piece has such like resonant meaning in Mexico City and with kind of all of the history around the politics. What does it mean to bring this piece to Philadelphia and how do you translate meaning or how do you find new meaning in building this with Philadelphia residents who, you know, don't have that same kind of uh, political mm -hmm. history? It's interesting because that doesn't mean there is a political discussion going on right now. You're right in terms that it's a different one. Uh, what resonates with me and the, the thing that made me want to do the project outside Mexico was a conversation about diversity, some kind of racial uh, encounter or disencounter maybe mm -hmm. uh, that I could even sense walking the city. And French art say like we are very interested like in a project like yours because community and I say yeah. But the discussion is political. Like I say, mm -hmm. my like the origin of project is this. So we had a long conversation and I say like we really, we really think that we need some kind of a way of encountering each other. Uh, there are Latinos, African African Americans. There are white people. There are immigrants from Puerto Rico, Honduras, Cambodia, Vietnam. You know, and in a way, they are not like points of encounter maybe between all these people, right? Mm -hmm. So there, that was the political discussion. And for me, uh, it was, yeah, it was like light there because as a Mexican, I do also reflect a lot about this immigrant condition and this relationship with uh, the United States. And of course, in this presidency is more... Uh, how can I say it? Tense. Yeah. It's more tense right now. Yeah. Yeah, and our historical relation with the idea of getting out of the country to have a better future and what happens and what is the life of these immigrants here. So these are the things that I was really interested. I was really interested to find some kind of a social dialogue, mm -hmm. a conversation that we could work in. Which doesn't mean that, that of course, we're going to achieve it like that, right? Like, right. I mean, we still don't know it. But for me, what made me say, I want to be in Philly, is the intention. We have to start from one point. Mm -hmm. And the point is to be open to that intention and to work through that intention. Mm -hmm. It might happen, it might not happen, but that consciousness. And then in the process to be learning what it takes to have that conversation, it gives us clues, reality clues of how to, how to need better those bridges to have the conversation. Do you find the Philadelphians are open to that intention so far in your so, work? So far, it's been very interesting because I am like my... My first uh, approaches are for, with French arts team and with a choreographic team that is from Philadelphia. 
So in terms of human beings, like in terms of the space, it's another conversation. So I will go first with the people. people. With mm-hmm. the people. Well, first is the French arts team that they are the ones calling me. So they have this urge, this intention, this desire of going towards there, which I really uh, like in terms of that Umbal is not in the regular production, performing arts production system because it's a long-term piece. Mm -hmm. It's not made in 15 days or in one month. It takes time and time is what makes it possible. Now, uh, what I found is that French arts is also learning through this project a lot of things. And that, for me, is the most valuable thing. Mm-hmm. Because it's opening these reflections and this conversation in our French arts. I believe, I think I have this perception. I'm, I you're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would say you're right. Yeah, we're learning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, with the choreographic team... I think it's, the learning process for me is, has been different. First, because I ask clearly, I ask a diverse group that if, I, if we were going to have a conversation like this, I needed in the group a diverse group. Mm-hmm. It's been interesting. Of course, this choreographic team is really open. For some reason, they were interested and they are working. They are also speaking out loud about the tensions about the neighborhoods and about the way a body moves, for example, and what power or unempowered body might represent for a Latino than from an African-American than from a white American, mm-hmm. right? So this kind of dialogue and conversation is just giving me a side, a, perce- a perception of, of a difference, like there is difference between all these people, but it has become more clear through the neighborhoods, not through the people with, that I'm working with side by side. But with the neighborhoods, the, the geographically designed city that Philly is, and what are the streets telling you, the way it's organized the street, how the houses are, the people that are outside the houses, how do they see us when we are walking around? And that is, in a way, giving me some disconnection. What talks about the city as it is, disconnection in terms that there is only in a few places, there is this crossing intersections of conversations of our diversities. Mm-hmm. Philly is very segregated. That's that's my perception so far. So I think that definitely is not a process that a project like this will achieve. Like, oh yeah, we made it. Like it's, it's so complex and it has to do it has to do with distribution of power. It has mm-hmm. to do uh, it's a conversation of race and mm-hmm. a lot of conversation that has come out is gentrification mm-hmm. conversation that is changing a lot of things but also that gentrification is related to race yeah yeah so so far this reception about people I still don't know I'm, I'm, I'm in that uh, moment that I'm just perceiving only. Mm-hmm. And it's in a very, very early stage. Mm-hmm. But what I have to say that has been for me 
really uh, like a wake-up call, and I don't know if the choreographic team is aware of that, is what has happened in the neighborhoods when people see three African-Americans, one Latina, and then one white American walking together. That has and this is you and the choreographic team. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for example, that little example, it has been very interesting. Just the fact to see four or five people walking together. Mm-hmm. And walking not because we are walking to go to one place to the other because we need to walk, to work. Mm-hmm. But we are just walking the neighborhood. And that is something that mainly people are like watching like, what, what is this? Mm. It's not common. Mm-hmm. And that tells you so, so much. much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in some neighborhoods that could be seen as, what? Like, what are you doing here? Like, are we your curiosity? Like mm. this kind of, kind of a little bit defensive way? Mm-hmm. What are you, like, what? You, you want to come here and change the world? Kind of. Mm-hmm. In another, it's just to an observation. And in others, it's like a lot of curiosity, maybe. So, but like, for example, that, it says so much about, about the idea of what kind of city is like, or how is it organized, mm-hmm. what kind of conversations are needed. Also talks about the idea of walking, the use of walking, the abstract idea of walking as uh, something I, I can see people in Philly use a lot their their cars yeah mm-hmm. and and versus walking so that's an interesting reflection for me uh, so these are the things that I'm learning and the other thing that I'm very happy about is that even the choreographic team hadn't been in many places that we walked through mm. Yeah, that's great. And that tells me a lot about how a person maybe that lives in Philly relates to the geographic, mm-hmm. geographical space. Maybe it reduces to specific points and not very much moving from there. It's a way of organizing life. But it's interesting because everything is crossed by economy, by mm-hmm. cultural thing, maybe... I think it is really interesting because, like, I, I went to school in West Philly, and obviously Fringe Arts is an old city, and when I was in college, I would, like, come to Center City, I'd come to Old City, and so when I, now I still live in West Philly because I was kind of, like, looking for housing, and I was like, well, I, I know this area, um, and so I kind of stayed in West Philly, and, like, even now, just thinking about, like, the Market Frankfurt line is, like, my go-to but that doesn't really include the Broad Street line. Like, I'm still learning about South Philly, mm-hmm. North Philly, Fishtown areas. Like, all of that's still very new to me. Mm-hmm. And so I think one thing that's really cool about the Fringe Festival is that I get to go to so many different shows in different neighborhoods. But even that is, like, I might just be driving there. Mm-hmm. I don't usually walk to a specific location and kind of explore the full neighborhood around that place. Yeah. It was the Fringe Festival that that taught me the geography of Philadelphia. Because when I moved to Philadelphia in 2016, I moved in August, and the festival started a month later. 
And I just decided that I was going to see like four shows a week and I would get on my bike and I would just, I'd be like, I don't even know where I am right now. But the, because I was like on my way to see a show, I really got to know how the city was laid out. And so I would go to see shows. Like I lived in West Philly at the time too. And so I would go to see shows in Old City, but also in North Philly and also in South Philly and just like all over the place. And it's, yeah, I mean... It, it, there aren't a lot of occasions that people have to move on a map that is different than like, here's where I live, here's where I work, here's where my yeah. friend lives, here's where my gym is, here's my favorite restaurant, and that's like it, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That, those points on the map are the most frequented, and so it's not very common for people to have reasons to like have to go out into different spaces. Definitely. Right. I think it, it tends to happen in big cities mm-hmm. and in cities. At like, for example, Mexico City, that might happen because it's so big. Yeah. <laughs> the city's so big. But anyway, the range of movement of or transportation is wider than what I have found here <laughs> for the choreographic team in Philly, at least. With the, the Mexico City's public transportation is... La- like the people in Mexico City, we tend to go a little bit further, <laughs> I can say. but at, And it's not that I'm criticizing something, I'm just saying that we have a different cultural totally approach maybe and maybe also it is um cross with economical condition of course but like the phenomena itself mm-hmm. is that we move more mm-hmm. through the city well i think there's also something that's a little bit lifestyle about it too because like i think about philly is really so big like germantown and mount airy those are Glenside. Those are, Philly. Those are neighborhoods <laughs> in Philadelphia, but they're so far away and they're so inaccessible by public transportation. The people who end up living there are people who are older or have families or commute in their cars to work. And I just think a lot about people that I know that live in those suburbs that is still technically Philadelphia. Their lifestyle also means that they move on a different map because they drive yeah, different yeah. places. And like to me, to go out there is like that's so far away. It's like going to a different state because <laughs> I'm just like on my bike and I'm going from West Philly to Old City and like I can't go out there, you know. But it's like actually the city is enormous and yeah. so and the kinds of lifestyles that different geographies promote, it's just so different. Yeah, and I also, my reflection is about, like, it's not the first time that I listen to, to this comment about some cities in the United States that do not have a very good public transportation mm-hmm. system. And in Mexico, we have kind of have the opposite. We have a really good transportation system that connects everything with everything. The only thing that we are more people than the public transportation. I mean, like, our problem, the connection lines, uh-huh. but that is not enough. People. Like, right. we are too many people. And, yeah, that would be the problem. But that that makes us be able to go to different places. Right. And Philadelphia's public transportation really is commuter. Everything is pointing in the direction of Center City. To get from West Philly to South Philly, even though the most direct route would be, like, southwest or southeast you know you have to go straight into center city and then straight down i couldn't go from west philly to germantown very easily i mean there is the commuter rail but it but again it's like only connecting these neighborhoods to the center of the city and then there is another reflection for me which is about the city and compared to my city that it has other kind of political layers is that is our transportation system is public it's from the state 
And here is a private... SEPTA is private, right? Is, is your public transportation free? No, but, but the state is the one in charge of I handling don't. everything. Isn't and SEPTA... What I, I have learned, know. what I have learned, I think SEPTA is a private company, but I think it's yes. like with, like very much in conjunction, but yes, like but SEPTA it's, is but its, it's own. But it's, it's managed by a private company, mm-hmm. and that Mexico is like, there is a secretary, like in Mexico City, the mobility secretary, and is in charge of... It's state-created, like the state created it. We're, we're, we're currently Googling friends at home. Um... <laughs> Wait, so, so one of the choreographers told you that it was yeah. privately owned? That privately was, managed. Privately yeah. managed. That would not surprise me. Everything here is private. And so public in terms of that it's from the state, but it's also mm-hmm. managed by the state. Yeah, right. got it's it. not a private company managing the metro subway or something. No. We just have two final questions. Yeah. Um, you can make them snappy. Yeah. Okay. So we're really curious, you know, where did the name Umbal come from? Oh, Umbal came from um, a Mayan tongue from the Mayas that are in the south of Mexico. So Umbal means balancing, like to, yeah, to do a balance. Mm -hmm. But I didn't look for the word because of the meaning, but because how it sounded. So I was thinking that with like a call of war, and I was so angry at that time that I yeah. needed, I needed a sound, and I didn't want to have this artistic name, of the flock, or like this yeah, kind of thing yeah, that is yeah. recognizable. Yeah, I just wanted something that nobody knew what it was like, but just saying it would provoke something. I mean, it really is quite provocative yeah. like even in English to say umbal nomadic choreography for inhabitants people are like what's that <laughs> yeah actually yeah so. so our last question for you what are your highbrow inspirations and your lowbrow inspirations like yeah so, so you can say uh, what are your high class, like, you know, fancy, intellectual, fancy, those kinds of inspirations? And then what's just like your... In terms of culture, art, or something like that? Yeah, it could be uh, like... Like give a little brow you... inspiration for yourself. So, okay, so like I will say like a highbrow one. Well, actually, I always go back and forth. I think Shakespeare is a little bit both highbrow and lowbrow. Okay. Um, but like this idea of like high art and like artists who, you know, inspire you. And then like lowbrow is like, what's that trash TV show that you like watching uh, or like, okay. I don't know, something just really like... Oh, what kind of like... Okay. Uh, my highbrows are... I have so many... You're such a classy person. <laughs> I am a classy person. I am. I love architecture. I'm inspired by architects mm-hmm. uh, such as uh, Johanny Palasma, like kind of texts, or this group from Japan called Zana or Kengo Kuma architect. Uh, so I could go on and on about mm-hmm. architects because I do love architecture. Like it's an inspiring mm-hmm. point for me. I'm inspired by some kinds of music, uh, different kinds of music. My like high, high what? Brow. High brow. Like, could eyebrow. be, okay, could be like, 
Los Gaiteros de San Jacinto, there's a group from Colombia, they're, they're doing very traditional cumbia song, but it has something like really earth and so truth. So that could be like a high level inspiration as, as choreographers that maybe I also admire a lot, or I have admired at some point, or theater directors. As I'm forgetting the name, my God, uh, Philippe King, okay. Vivarium Studio, some somebody that uh, inspires me, for example. And my lowbrow, low <laughs> definitely, definitely bloopers from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I love that that is your lowbrow. Oh my God. I can spend hours and bloopers from some TV series. I, I Like there's nothing better for me than seeing a character that breaks the character. Yes, I love that. I am I'm so, I'm so... I'm resonating with that so much. I'm so obsessed. Like sometimes I can't feel down. And I, I would be like watching chapters of like bloopers forever of some series. And in Saturday Night Live to see characters losing it, like Ryan Gosling, I remember one that it was great. Or I remember, or segments of Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. There was these things that I called the Californians. Yes. <laughs> I know that one very well, Mariana. <laughs> <laughs> I would you just be like... An, I mean, I am Mexican. I don't have that American culture, but it's so funny that I would be repeating it. I just love it. California. That's how they actually talk. Yeah. That's how Californians really That are. is my low brow. Um, no, that, that would be like, yeah. That's a good answer. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Happy Hour on the Fringe. It was great to have you. Thank you. And make sure to follow Umbal all around Philadelphia, September 7th and 8th. And you can follow Fringe Arts on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram. And make sure to download the Fringe Arts app ahead of the Fringe Festival this year. Bye.